Some staggering numbers came out on Friday that if you're not into getting the coronavirus vaccine, you might want to change your mind. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Layla Atassi, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Yeah, you're a little more peppy than I would think for a Monday. <laughs> let's, let's get right to it. How many of Ohio's 400,000 coronavirus cases since mid-December involve people who were vaccinated, and how many of those resulted in death? Jen Cahoon, this really was a jaw-dropping number when this popped out on Friday afternoon. Yeah, we only had 34 cases reported among those 400,000 cases that have involved people who had been vaccinated, and that's as of December 14th when they started the shots. Only five of those cases resulted in hospitalizations, and there were zero deaths. So it's a minuscule number, like barely a fraction of a percent, something like less than one one hundredth of a of a percent. Now, we don't know whether those people had one dose or both doses or how soon, you know, after they were vaccinated, they became infected or, you know, whether they might have been exposed to a more contagious Variant, you know, that the vaccine isn't quite as effective against. So we we don't know that. But as I said, we do know there have been zero deaths among those those people. And uh, the Ohio Department of Health stressed that, you know, the vaccines are safe and effective when when it comes to preventing hospitalization or severe COVID nineteen or death. But they did note the efficacy rates vary and. You know, there's a small chance with each vaccine, you know, just like there is with the flu shot that despite being vaccinated, you still may contract. All right. Stop, stop trying to talk people out of it. That's, that's, <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's not okay, talk people sorry. out of it. Look, look, that is a staggering number. And you got to figure that at least some of those 34 were people that might have had it before they got the shot. It just hadn't manifested itself. Right. Yet. That's or, what I was thinking of. Yeah. Or they, you know, the, after you get that first Pfizer or Moderna shot. It takes eight to 10 days before your body builds up the immunity. So if you get the shot and get exposed in that period, you can still get pretty sick. But the fact that it's 34 out of 400,000, I mean, this is whoever is not thinking about getting the vaccine. Stop. Just go get the vaccine. Uh, you might this... want to call a few of the Republican lawmakers in the in the statehouse, Chris, and <laughs> you know, reinforce this with them. It's good news. Layla Tassi. I read a couple of days ago that the VA's Office of Research and Development is on the brink of publishing some findings that say that immunity seems to last between seven to nine months. Have you have you read anything else about this? I feel like I really I just want to know how long this immunity will last. When do we need to get another shot? Are the trial groups still being monitored for that? Or are we going to find out when COVID begins to surge again that it's time for everyone to re-up their vaccines? Do, do you well, know, Chris, you're like the clearinghouse for all this stuff? <laughs> well, but there are there's a range of what people think that could be I, there. Most people are predicting, though, that you'll have to get a booster uh, fairly regularly to deal with the, the variants. But here's the thing, because this was a novel coronavirus, one that the human body had never encountered before. The initial danger from that is the big danger. So once your system starts to build up any kind of immunity to it, you're better off. And so I don't think we're, no matter what happens, we're going to be in the position we all were in last March, last February, when a brand new virus to the human body 
was starting to go raging around the world mm. were ahead of it. And so the makers, look, the makers know there's a lot of money to be made for the future by continuously <laughs> providing boosters. And I suspect that we'll be regularly traipsing off, but it'll be much more like the flu shot where it'll come out at intervals and we'll go in. The trick, the, the real trick was getting people vaccinated now so that it's no longer something that is fresh to your body. And I think everybody on this podcast has now gotten their first shot and one of us has had their second. <laughs> yes, I have. And I'm yeah. very happy. I mean, everybody that I, I talk to that we work with is is getting the shot, young and old. So uh, I'm feeling good about the fact. I'm counting that, the days. <laughs> I'm like a day nine, right? Like I have some immunity now. Right, right. That's what I did on day nine. I thought, okay, I'm there. All right, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much trouble is Cleveland Municipal Court Judge Pinky Carr in? Layla Tassi, we did some stories at the beginning of the pandemic for some pretty weird antics that she pulled where she was holding court against directives and then trying to put people in jail for failing to appear after they had been told not to appear. But there's a whole new pile of stuff landing on her head now. What is it? Right, right. So disciplinary proceedings were already underway for the stuff that you just you just mentioned. But this new complaint is really kind of jaw dropping. It it details a variety of behavior that is at best improper courtroom decorum. She she routinely, according to the the complaint, antagonizes defendants and court staff and lawyers and cracks jokes at the expense of defendants. She presided over court hearings in workout clothes in one case and no robe. And it prompted one defendant to ask the court staff if a judge planned to attend the hearing. She negotiated plea deals with defendants without a prosecutor or defense attorney present, which is really hard to imagine. And she mocked one man charged with violating an open container law for drinking cheap beer and joked in the courtroom about how long it would take him to pay a $25 fine. And According to the complaint, she apparently hates being called ma'am. And one time she said that she wanted to punch an elderly defendant in the face for referring to her as ma'am. Assistant Disciplinary Counsel Michael Hall requested that the Board of Professional Conduct and the Ohio Supreme Court sanction her. And she has until April 15th to file a response. I have to say, I, I had gotten to know Pinky Carr pretty well when she was an assistant county prosecutor in Cuyahoga County. She was one of the lead attorneys on the Anthony Sowell case, which I covered. And afterward, I wrote a pretty extensive profile on her. And at that time, I really found her to be a very earnest, sincere, compassionate public servant. Her motto was smile in public, cry in private. And she said she would sometimes, you know, bawl all the way home from work. She was so moved by the cases that she was working on. And she was one of the very best attorneys in the major trials division. She was like their closer. She would get inside the jury's heads and leave the defense team scrambling to regain their footing. I was just so shocked and disappointed to read about the kinds of behavior that she's accused of. You know, we've had a, a handful of judges in county and muni court who have been pretty tyrannical at times. And I would never have predicted in a million years that Pinky Carr would become one of them. But, you know, if that behavior is captured on video, as was the case with her issuing those arrest warrants during the pandemic, it's going to be really hard for her to refute that. Well, and we had our own run in with her where she was kind of accusing our reporter of getting things wrong. And 
and again, it was on video. She right. has till April 15th to, to respond to all this, but, but this is pretty serious stuff. They don't often level these kinds of charges against the judge. If you remember how long it took for them to finally remove Angela Stokes. Right. Right. I mean, she was there forever and, you know, she reacted because she didn't like people's perfume. Uh, This is pretty serious. Pinky Carr can end up getting kicked off the bench. So we'll Mm -hmm. have to see what she says in her April 15th response. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What has the pandemic taught us about what we need to do as a society to be prepared for the next one? Laura Johnston, sum that up in three minutes for us. Oh, right. <laughs> sure. I mean, the main takeaway is that we actually need to be prepared. We need to think about this stuff. We should spend money to update government computer systems like our contract tracing software, our unemployment system. We should prioritize scientific research. We should make broadband internet as ubiquitous as electricity so everyone can work from home and go to school from home. And we should actually have a public health system that makes sense so that health officials coordinate with each other at every level of government from federal to state to local. And so we don't get mixed messages and things could run more smoothly. I mean, think about this. Ohio has 113 local health departments. Does anyone think that's efficient? I, I don't think so. But no one ever thought about it before the pandemic. So there's well, all these... Let me, Go let, ahead. let me stop you. The reason yeah. we're asking this question is why? Because we asked it of our subtexters and our readers. Subtext is a a text message service you can get for uh, free or through subscription uh, with Cleveland.com. And we asked people what they thought. You know, after a year of the pandemic, it has wormed its way into every little facet of society and shown us all the cracks in every facet of life, every system we rely on. So we asked people what they thought, and we got a lot of really good responses. And then we talked to some experts as well. Cameron Fields did a story that ran on Sunday on cleveland.com and in the plain dealer. What what this pointed out to me was in 1918 when we came out of that pandemic none of us were around clearly but when the country came out of that pandemic there was a intentional way of proceeding. That's where those county health boards all came from. The, the country realized it needed to have a sensible system for dealing with future pandemics and quarantines and all of these health boards were created to do that. Now, clearly in this pandemic, uh, the county health boards were a disaster because they weren't honest and they didn't know what they were doing. They weren't accountable to anybody. We've talked about it quite a bit, but we don't, it doesn't feel like you have the same direction is, is in the nation to come up with a solution. We heard from a lot of smart people that clearly see the issues and where we need to go but we still have a bunch of Republicans in the state legislature who won't wear masks. They're not going to want to correct things. As a matter of fact, they're trying to reduce the governor's ability, have reduced the governor's ability to issue health orders. It's, it, it feels like we're dumber now than we were in 1918. I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, it, right. We talked about this on the podcast on Friday, I think, that the people who are responding to us saying we want more coordination, we want more planning, we want more government money spent on this so that we're prepared. And instead, we're like, nope, not a problem. We're going to undo health orders. And I haven't seen any plan that tries to coordinate federal, state, and and local health departments. Nobody's put forward a plan to make it make more sense. So Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, some people thought that we ought to have more of a centralized system. Look, the, the rollout of the vaccine proved that. The right. way the vaccine was handled by a million different places cause nightmares for most of the people who are trying to get it. And then when we finally had the central vaccination stations, lots and lots of people got vaccinated. So 
It's a fascinating story. Cameron did a nice job with it. It is on Cleveland.com. With a quarter of all Ohioans vaccinated against the coronavirus, why have the cases stopped dropping? Jane Cahoon, we, we see in other states that the surges are happening. Michigan, for instance, is more than double what it was. We haven't hit that, but the nice decreases we were seeing every week have stopped, which, which seems not to make sense because so many people are getting the vaccine. What did Rich Exner and Laura Hancock find out? Well, they found out that at least part of it seems to be that we're in this race to get people vaccinated to stay ahead of these new variants of, of the virus that are more contagious. So they did analyze this this recent trend of the flattening out and, and also talk to experts about this. And it does appear that these these variants are playing a role, as well as maybe a bit of COVID fatigue with people, you know, doing more activities and, and letting their, their guard down. But one of the experts said that with, you know, something like a quarter of Ohioans vaccinated so far, it's clearly not enough to turn back these these variants that are beginning to spread. But if we could hold steady, continue to hold steady in this number of new cases for about four to six weeks, maybe we could get closer to the 60 percent of the population vaccinated and another wave could be averted. But, you know, some people think it's inevitable we're going to have another variant driven wave. But the good news, as we've said before, is that even if you do contract one of these variants, you know, and you've been vaccinated, your chances of of dying or or ending up in the hospital are extremely rare. So, you know, just to give you a quick example of the the possible impact of vaccinations on this phenomenon, their their analysis shows that older Ohioans, the ones who were vaccinated first, are now accounting for smaller and smaller shares of both the cases overall and the severe cases that have resulted in in hospitalizations. And then meanwhile, the share of cases for people under age 30 has grown from like 33.1% in January to 37.9% of all Ohio cases reported to date. And even more dramatic has been the shift in hospitalizations among coronavirus patients admitted in January, 49.5% were at least age 70. And that share has dropped to 32.4% for March. So you can see the difference there. You you mentioned something we've talked about before, this this fatigue where people have thrown caution to the wind. And I keep saying, I haven't seen that. I was at the Detroit Zoo on Saturday, and it was probably 99% of the people wearing masks and taking precautions and waiting their turn to get up to see the baby chimpanzee when there was social distancing. I, I just don't see the, the, that caution. Mo- I have something to I, say about that. I go, I see people <laughs> largely behaving. Now, we've all seen the pictures of spring break. And I mentioned a few weeks ago, we drove down Warren's or Center Road and there were hundreds and hundreds of John Carroll students not wearing masks, all banded close together, which just made your skin crawl. But but in your life, are you seeing people do that? Go ahead, Leila. So I think it's more subtle than than that. I think when people are still shopping or out in public places, they're still wearing masks as they have been. And and, you know, it's not so extreme uh, bending the rules or, or the guidance is not so extreme as as the you know, what we're seeing at spring break. But it's people who are gathering with friends again, who are feeling that comfort level, who are having play dates again that are inside their homes, who are doing these things without masks because 
they're either fatigued or they're, you know, they feel like, well, you know, some half of half of our pod is vaccinated and the other half isn't. And I don't know, there, it's that kind of subtle loosening of the of the, the guidelines that we've been living by that I think that it, it that's what I've noticed among my friends who have gotten COVID in the last month or so. It's because they had lived by the rules and all of a sudden they were like, well, we let our kids go have a play date in someone's home without masks. And the father who was working outside the home who said he was wearing a mask at, in his workplace got COVID somehow and was home without a mask. And, and everybody got COVID. I mean, it was like, really? The, yeah. Oh, my gosh. The kids brought it home to their parents. My friend and her husband were sick as dogs. Dog, I swear it was it was a terrible and they had been wearing masks and, and playing by the rules wow. this entire time. And it was just a terrible, terrible situation. All right. Um, well, that, that would explain that throwing caution to the wind. That's yeah. really, really Could sad. I also mention that on Friday we did see a bit of an aberration. I, it's something we'll have to keep an eye on. But there was a big jump in cases on Friday. The weekend, you know, leveled off again. But there, there were 2,742 new cases on, on Friday. And that was the highest number for any day since February 23rd. Well, it is hard to believe that Michigan has doubled its cases and we're flat. You have to yeah, think. At least this, we're not Michigan. But, oh, but you have to think that we could be facing that, which is, well, look, we're in that race. Yeah, scary. People vaccinated before the variants rage out of control. Is there is, Mich- is Michigan's vaccination rates lower than ours right now? Well, I, I was talking to some people up there that mm-hmm. cannot get it who and if they were in Ohio, they I mean, look, everybody on our staff just about has been able to find it it's become much more easy to get in Ohio. We're not in the top 10 of states of getting the vaccine out, but we're doing pretty well. And I think mm-hmm. Michigan's just very, very backwards. Uh, and and it's clear. I mean, there's frustration there with how many people are unable to get it. You know, they could come to Ohio to get it. It's not that far away. And Mike DeWine has said he's okay with that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Cleveland State University unveiled its long-anticipated CSU 2.0 plan Friday. Leila Tassi, is this a forward-thinking plan that is trying to position them as a leader in future industries, or is this just a big cost-cutting thing so they can reduce staff? It sounds like a little of both. The timelines for achieving these goals are still a little murky, but basically CSU is, is aiming to consolidate its academic offerings into six colleges down from eight. So it'll be law, engineering, business, health professions, urban affairs and social sciences, and education and arts and sciences. They also want to double the number of students who live on campus. So they're kind of looking to increase that student body on on campus. The the university will design a campus master plan in the coming years that will include more residential space and more research labs, and and they hope to boost enrollment by an additional 4,500 students by 2025, which is pretty significant. Uh, CSU wants to reduce the administrative costs, as you said, by up to $2 million, potentially through offering retirement incentives or leaving vacated positions unfilled. But also they're looking to hire 200 new faculty in in health, smart manufacturing, applied social sciences and data analytics. So looking to the future, they'd like to create also a new urban public health institute, which I'm not entirely clear what what that that is. But uh, what I found most interesting in the plan was the idea to offer a co-op guarantee through partnerships. The university would provide a co-op or internship experience to any student who wants one 
And I just think that could really go a long way toward connecting students to their future career fields. I think too many, too many new college grads are kind of rudderless and uh, giving them that opportunity to make connections, I think sounds like a really good idea. The idea that they would greatly increase the number of people living there means they're going to need a lot more dorm space. And that means you have to get more land. It's not like that they have vacant land sitting around. Frankly, they could buy our building. Um, (laughs) Actually, that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty. We have a whole block and we're looking to sell, as everybody knows. But I, I, I guess that's that's expensive. That's a big capital investment that you'd have to get some support from the legislature on. It'd be wonderful if they could do it because building a campus is nice. On the other hand, where is the recognition in that plan that you can do this from home? I mean, there there was a lot of thought during the pandemic that maybe the college experience doesn't need to be four years on a campus. We've shown that students can learn from wherever they're they're at <laughs> through electronics. Not tell, tell that to, tell that, tell that to any 18-year-old, though, not, who's trying to get out of their house after a pandemic. I don't think yeah. anyone wants to be with well, my question, this is Laura Johnston. They said they were going to try to do more with Rhodes Tower, right? Which is a major part of the mm-hmm. Cleveland skyline. And they've been mothballing that building. So maybe they can just make those into dorms. I feel like we turn everything else into apartments so they can live there. Okay, there you go. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the Count the Kicks campaign and how successful has it been elsewhere? Laura Johnston, all yours. I said, this is one question I did not have to prep for. Julie Washington pitched this story on her own, but it features my sister, Heather Johnston-Welliver. She is a representative of Count the Kicks, which is this incredible public health campaign that aims to prevent stillbirth by educating expectant parents that the lack of movement in the pregnancy, especially in the third trimester, can be an early sign that an unborn baby is in distress. Stillborn rates in this country have not budged in nearly a century. 26,000 babies are stillborn every year, which means they die in utero after 20 weeks. And Count the Kex is this really creative app that pregnant moms can use to keep track of movement. It was created by a bunch of Iowa mothers whose babies were stillborn. And in the last decade, it has decreased stillbirth rates in Iowa by 32%, which I find astounding and just such great work by them. How does it work? How does the app work? Well, like you you choose a time and you usually lay down and you would count the kicks in a measured sense so that you press the button or whatever when you sit there to do that. And that way you have data. So you don't have to just say when your OB says, have you felt any kicks lately? Has there been movement? You don't have to think about it and be like, when was the last time I, I felt my baby kick? Instead, you have this data to show exactly the baby's normal movement. And if it's not normal, you'll have the background to know that. So if the number of kicks, for instance, were to go down in a period, that would be an alarm for the doctor that there might be distress that they they could examine and deal with? Right. And not just the doctor. I mean, I think part of this campaign is to teach mothers to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. I think pregnant women never want to be a bother. They don't want to think that they're overreacting. But this teaches you that you you are in tune with your body and you can be the one to advocate for your baby saying, no, like I need to go to the hospital now. You need to check me out and get, give people that voice. Can I, may I jump go in ahead, here? Lay, 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 lay. Julie Washington mentioned in the story that stillbirth affects black mothers and babies at yeah. higher rates. And I think what's clear from the research that's been done on infant mortality in Cleveland is that that statistic is a function of institutional racism, that doctors tend to be more, more dismissive of the concerns of their black patients 
so that even if a mother is tracking her baby's kicks, her concern over a drop-off in fetal movement could be just written off. And this app is such a useful and important tool. I use a similar one with my own pregnancies, but its, its ability to save babies' lives depends entirely on doctors' willingness to take a mother's intuition seriously. And so those racial disparities in the healthcare system really can stand in the way of that for Black mothers, and that has to be addressed. I completely agree. And the systemic racism and the, the stress that these mothers carry, I think the same issues are in stillbirth that they are in infant mortality. And so when you address one, hopefully we're addressing them both. Mm -hmm. And the good news here is that the Ohio Department of Health has teamed up with Count the Kicks. They can allow OBGYNs to order free brochures and posters for their offices so that people even know that this is available to them because it's a free app. Mm -hmm. Well, your sister's doing a great thing, Laura. It's a cool campaign. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Where does unemployment stand in Ohio? Jane Cahoon, we talked about unemployment a lot at the beginning of the pandemic. And then later in the pandemic, we realized that none of the numbers meant anything because everything was fraud. <laughs> so do we have any idea of where unemployment is in Ohio today? Can you actually measure it accurately, given the number of fraudulent claims that have been made? Yes, because the, the fraud is detected in, the, in those claims numbers, but the rate unemployment rate, I believe, is based on surveys. So it's not, I don't think it's affected by the fraud like the, the claims numbers are, but the rate is down a bit, but we did lose 8,400 jobs from January to February. And we're down 314,000 full and part-time workers from a year ago, right before the onset of the, of the pandemic. So we went down to 5% for February. And that's the lowest the rate's been since it stood at 4.9% in March of 2020. The previous low for, for that rate was uh, 5.3 in January. So it did, as I said, it did come down a bit. But the, the highest, I mean, last April, it was 16.4% higher than any point in published state records by the Bureau of Labor Statistics going back to 1976. And that, as we know, is when all the businesses closed during the pandemic. And so just tons of people were thrown thrown out of work. But um, the, the Ohio unemployment rate, interestingly, has been below the U.S. rate each month starting in September. So is the, part of that because people gave up looking for jobs? Well, yes, because the labor force is smaller. That's yes, I think yeah. so. So that, that so. affects the number if you just give up because you can't find one work. Right. They didn't want to do it because of COVID. They didn't want to take the risk. Okay, right. you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's do one more. What does Lee Weingart, the announced Republican candidate challenging Democrat Armin Budish for Cuyahoga County Executive next year, have to say about the plan announced last week to build or renovate the Justice Center in jail? And I want to point out, this is a plan that would not have competitive bidding, and there's no source for the half billion dollars or more it will cost. Leila Atassi. He, he really takes issue with that fact that Armin Budish's administration hasn't identified the funding source yet for this $500 million project, and also that they haven't considered any systemic reforms that could actually shrink the size of what they need to build and save money that way. Uh, Weingart pointed out that the county is already hampered with a billion dollars in debt from the Medical Mart and the Hilton Hotel. He says the money that would be spent on the jail would be better invested 
in affordable housing, economic development and education initiatives that would reduce crime and reduce the need for a new, bigger jail altogether. He criticized the plan to build a jail that would accommodate 2,400 inmates when the current jail only houses 1,750. But but really, our reporting pointed out that 2,400 would be the maximum occupancy of the new proposed facility. The, the aim is really less than 1,600 with the ability to expand to 2,400 if needed. But, you know, some of his criticisms land squarely, I think. I mean, last week, like you said, the county said that they they would be pursuing a design-build contract that bypasses the competitive bidding process. And that could invite corruption and, and waste into this deal. So he makes some I should, good points. I should point out, Jeff Applebaum, who is the, the guy getting paid to, to put this plan together, of course, defends it, wrote a long letter to us uh, after our story appeared saying, that he believes it it does have competitive bidding. It's just run by the design builder. The problem is, is that that isn't as transparent as a straight out uh, competitive bidding process. He points out the state law was changed to allow this and that counties, a lot of counties have been building with this design build process. But again, it relies on you to trust the government. And I think a lot of people aren't trusting this county government. I I just keep getting back to, and the, the 500, million is not accurate. They're talking actually 800 million to 1.2 billion. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why they keep lowballing that. Maybe that's just for one of the projects. It's for the jail or the justice center, but they don't have the money. I mean, they just don't have the money. Their bonding authority is tapped out. The only way they could get more is to go to the voters. And there's no way voters are going to That will be a tough this. sell. <laughs> it's just not going to happen, especially when it's born of this kind of stuff. This will be an issue in the next county executive race. So, so you know, we gave Lee Weingart uh, the say. He's the one announced candidate. This is a project that would last deep into the next term. And we wanted to give him a chance to state his opposition, which he has done. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, Monday's always got lots of news to talk about. We didn't get to all of it. Try and get to it tomorrow. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. 